Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Um, today, God speak to us from Psalm 62. Uh, 我的救恩是从他而来，唯独他是我的磐石，我的拯救。他是我的高台，我必不动摇。你们大家攻击一人，把他毁坏，如同毁坏歪斜的墙，将倒了壁，要到几时呢？他们呃彼此商议，专要从
right? Something, some problem, some struggle, some stress is always before us. And then we come to a psalm like Psalm 62, a psalm speaking about the stresses of life. In fact, the, the psalmist here is talking about feeling like he's going to collapse as a result of things that are burdening him. And yet, despite that, the psalmist, who is King David, actually, acknowledges and speaks of this rest that he experiences amidst the storms. I mean, what is it that David knows? What is it that David is experiencing that we, at times, really do seem to struggle with in the midst of our own storms? Well, today we are going to continue our series called Living Inside Out, A Life in the Psalms, in which we've been considering various, uh, various, various spiritual practices that are highlighted in the book of Psalms. Uh, and what we've noted over the last several weeks uh, is that this current season that we're in, we want to very much highly encourage everyone to really consider what it means to engage in rhythms of spiritual practices. Uh, we very much believe that healthy uh, spiritual rhythms of spiritual practice are vital to the ongoing growth of the Christian. Uh, and we'd again encourage you to join the class that will be starting next week uh, if you need help continuing to navigate what that looks like. But today we're going to consider our next practice uh, found here in Psalm 62, and that is the practice of rest. And more specifically, the practice of Sabbath rest. And so to consider what uh, Sabbath rest is and why we need it, let's consider our restlessness, our rest, and then finally his Sabbath rest. Okay, so first, our restlessness. Uh, several years ago, the New York Times ran a story about a man named Dan who worked too much. The article was essentially showing the inherent reasons for workaholism. And in the article, Dan makes numerous statements about the reality of what it's like being a workaholic. Uh, he said that no matter how much work he's done, it never feels like it's enough. He said that he worked for the sake of attention and admiration. Uh, and he admitted that his work was a way to suppress deeper feelings of inadequacy, depression, and anger. And the conclusion was that an obsession with work was the result of deep insecurities and essentially a desire to prove oneself. And as a result of that internal turmoil within Dan, he never rested. Now, we might assume that the experience of Dan is one of workaholism, meaning it might seem like Dan is working too much, but the main driver of that article, and something that we all know to be true, is that yes, though Dan is working too much, that's not his actual problem. Right? His actual problem were these feelings of inadequacy, his feelings of not having a deep uh, rootedness, a deep uh, rooted identity, an inability to handle the insecurity and the depressive situations that life was throwing at him. He was not rooted in anything truly anchoring, and so he's using work as an anchor, but ironically, it's that anchor that's now drowning him. And David in many ways, I think understands the pressure of that feeling. Look at what David says in verse 3. He says, How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down the leaning wall, this tottering fence? In other words, I have enemies trying to pull me down, and I feel like I am a wall about to cave in. David knows the pressures of life. 
And it's also true that we all know that feeling, right? We can identify with some of what David is describing there. We all know that feeling, like we're about to collapse. We all know that feeling that we're, we're at our wit's end. We don't know what else to do. We all know the feelings of uncertainty that's come about what is in the future. And we all know what it is like, like Dan, to look to various things to try and relieve the pressure to try to relieve that feeling of restlessness. And David, in our psalm, actually gives us a clue into some of the things that we often look to for comfort. And there's three in particular that I want to highlight here. There's probably more that we could say, but three in particular. The first thing that David points out that we often look to as that anchor is that David highlights people in his life. In verse 3, he references people who are assaulting him. Later on in verse 4, he speaks of these hypocritical people who bless with their mouths but curse with their hearts. And what is David talking about here? Well, he's talking about people, about relationships. David's highlighting something, I think, that maybe we often forget. That relationships, no matter how fulfilling those relationships might be, they are never going to produce that rest that we're searching for. The restlessness that's within our soul, it will not come as a result of relationships that we have. We cannot quench our feelings of inadequacy or our lack of rooted identity or our inability to handle our insecurities and depressive situations through relationships. Right? They, they might serve as a, a, as a distraction, but even the best people that we have in our life, they're going to fail us. They're going to disappoint us. They're going to be insufficient for what we are looking for. I mean, some of us really do believe that if I can experience good relationships, good friendships, you know, satisfying romantic or sexual relationships, or even healthy spousal love, if we can experience those things, then we will feel fulfilled. That the longing and the restlessness in our souls will finally be quieted. But we also, we know they won't because people disappoint us. People will not be sufficient. And when we think they will, we discover that like Dan, they become false anchors that actually drag us deeper into the waters of restlessness. Another thing that David points out here is not only people that we look to, but he also points out uh, in verse 9, look at what he says here. Uh, he says, uh, David says, surely the lowborn are but a breath, and the highborn are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together, they are only a breath. It's kind of poetic language, but what's he talking about there? He's speaking of status. He's speaking of those who have low status, those that have high status. And he's saying, listen, whether you're of low status or high status, neither one of those are going to provide you any kind of rest. And, and David knows this firsthand. Remember, David, he grew up as a lowly shepherd in the fields. He knows what it's like to be low status. This was a job nobody wanted. But now, David, he's speaking as a king, one of the greatest kings, no less. But he says, whether you are lowborn or highborn, it doesn't matter. There is no rest. I mean, some of us here, we believe that maybe if we could just reach a certain level of status, We'd find fulfillment and a measure of rest. And David says, no, you won't. Now, conversely, some of us have maybe 
reached a certain measure of status, some measure of success, and maybe you're thinking, man, if my life was just a little bit simpler, a little less demanding, if I was a simpler man, I could find some rest. But whether you're overseeing a vast kingdom or you're spending your days with sheep, David says, nope, there is no rest for either. And in a place like New York, and maybe for many of you here, it's good to have a constant reminder that nothing that you are pursuing right now, hear me on this, (laughs) nothing you're pursuing, nothing that your life is centered around is going to give you what you ultimately hope it will. It's going to fail you. You could hit every measure of success and you will not be satisfied. You will still have that restlessness in your soul. A third thing that David points out here is in verse 10. It's kind of connected but distinct. He says, Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. In other words, money's not going to do it either. We often think that we need more money to calm the restlessness of our soul. Right? How much is enough? Just a little bit more. That's the problem with money. It never satisfies. And in the end, money, if we anchor our soul to it, is also going to drown us in the end. You know, this is super cliche. I've got a lot of cliches today, but famously, Jim Carrey, that Jim Carrey quote still very much rings true. He once said, of course, Jim Carrey, the famous actor, comedian, he said, I hope everybody could get rich and famous and will have everything they ever dreamed of so that they know it's not the answer. You are restless. I am restless. We are feeling overwhelmed, longing for calm seas, but waves keep coming. And what this psalm tells us is that relationships, success, riches, or anything else we look to, they will only serve to drown you if you anchor your soul to them. And so that's the case. What then is the answer? Well, David also gives us the answer that we are searching for, which leads us to our rest. Uh, David makes it pretty clear what he rests in. Uh, In verses 1 and 5 in particular, so after naming all the different turmoil that he's experiencing, he says in verse 1, Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. Truly he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. And despite the waves of the storm, despite the hardships around him, David has calm and rest in in the midst of it. Why? Because the rest that David is describing is obviously not a rest, void of trials. He's in the midst of them right now. Rather, it's a soul, spirit kind of rest that securely anchors him in the storm. And his anchor It's not relationships, it's not success, it's not riches or anything else. Instead, his anchor is his rock and his salvation, his fortress that cannot be shaken. Whatever else that he might seek for comfort and rest, he is finding only his satisfaction in the Lord. Now, with all that said, it's important for us to just acknowledge, depending on where our starting point might be, That actually sounds like one of the most pat Christian answers to complicated tensions. It's the kind of thing that you expect to see on a bumper sticker, that God is my only anchor in the storm. And it sounds like what we're supposed to say 
in the midst of hardship and restlessness. But what in the world does that do for us practically? Is there any practicality to acknowledging the Lord being my anchor in the storm? Because though it does sound like a pat answer, if we read this psalm carefully, it is anything but a pat answer. There is a depth of wisdom here that we cannot miss. And it's what ultimately allows David to find that rest in the midst of the storm in the Lord. And there's two foundations here in our passage that I want to acknowledge that will also allow us to experience that rest and God as our anchor. The first one is this. Look at verse 8. In verse 8, David tells us to, quote, trust in him, that's the Lord, trust in him at all times. I find that one of the most underdeveloped theology in many of our lives is a theology of trusting the sovereign goodness of God in all things. Trusting in God at all times means I trust that God is both sovereign and good always. That there is never a moment when the circumstances of life are outside of his knowledge. That there's never a time when the storm is beyond his control. Now, of course, that does not mean that he is the source of all circumstances, the source of all, all storms, but he is sovereign over them. If you remember in our Job series uh, a while back, we considered that the source of Job's suffering was the evil one. And yet God, for reasons beyond Job's understanding, sovereignly allowed that suffering, even though in many ways Job did not, uh, he uh, was not deserved, that he did not deserve what befell him. But what we also see is that though God is sovereign over all things, he nonetheless continues to be just and righteous and good in all that he allows. You and I will never experience rest if we do not trust the sovereign goodness of God in all things. Until we do that, we will always be restless. But the second thing that David points out is not only do we need to have the trust in the Lord at all times, David also continues in verse 8 by saying, that we are to pour out our hearts to him. What does that mean? Well, in other words, if we want to experience rest, as you trust in the sovereign goodness of God, we must then surrender our lives completely to his will. Trust and surrender are the foundations for us experiencing the kind of rest that he's describing. Now, not always, but sometimes, the waves that batter us are not the waves of a storm outside of our control. Instead, sometimes they are the result of our insistence of paddling against the current of God's will. Sometimes we face endless restlessness because we refuse to give ourselves to the current and flow of God's desires for us. We don't surrender to it. Now, I don't know what that looks like for you. Maybe for some of us, to use the examples that we just hit on a minute ago, maybe for some of us, you keep looking to unhealthy and even toxic relationships to fill a void. And in doing so, we fall into patterns we know God does not want for us. 
And we could acknowledge that we have not poured out our life to him, surrendered ourselves to him. Maybe for some of us, seeking that level of success and status, when doing so causes us to do things, pursue things that are not honoring to God. That pursuit of success maybe requires you to live in ways unpleasing to God. And as a result, we have not poured out our life to him, surrendered to him. For some of us, that pursuit of money, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but it begins to start to consume us. Or that desire for security that we're hoping money will bring keeps us from being generous, which is the very reason that God has provided us with the resources that we have. But what we see in that lack of generosity, that allowing money to begin to consume us, we're showing that we have not poured our lives out to him. We have not surrendered ourselves to his will. But hear me, my friends. Trust and submission are the ways we experience God being our anchor, our mighty rock, our fortress. And until we acknowledge that, until we organize our lives and we think around that, we will never experience true rest. Instead, that restlessness will always remain. And so with that said, you might be asking, what does this have to do with spiritual practices? What does this look like practically? I'm glad you asked. That brings us to our third point, Sabbath rest. So all throughout the Bible... The practice uh, of rest is often associated with the notion of Sabbath. What is Sabbath rest? Uh, I want to give you three things about Sabbath rest, all of which comes together. So stay with me for a minute. Right? I promise this is all going to have a point. The first thing that we need to consider when we're thinking about Sabbath rest, as the Bible talks about it, is the notion of creation. What takes place in creation? Because first, Sabbath rest actually begins at creation. We cannot understand the concept of Sabbath rest until we first consider the rest that God experiences on the seventh day of creation in Genesis 2. I won't uh, go through that completely, but what we can take away from there is that when we often think about rest, we often think about it in terms of sleep or lack of stress. However, that's not actually what we see happening in God's Sabbath rest in Genesis 2 for several reasons. First, God is not, of course, subject to physical strain, nor uh, has God ceased from all activity. Rather, what we're seeing in Genesis 2 is that God, when he takes the Sabbath rest, has simply ceased from his foundational creation of the universe. Right? He's established the universe. But the second is if you read that creation narrative, you'll notice all the days of creation have both a morning and an evening ascribed to them. However, on day seven, it never ends with an evening. In other words, that day has never ended. Day seven is still continuing right now as we speak. It's a never-ending, eternal rest. And so Sabbath rest, at least, is a reminder of God's rule and reign over the eternal. But it's also a reminder that rest seems to be foundational to the flourishing of creation. Remember, we're in Genesis 2 here where God institutes this rest. Sin has not even entered into creation yet in Genesis 3. So there's something foundational about creation in God's Sabbath rest, which we'll come back to in a minute. But at minimum, 
It's about God's rule and reign. The second thing to consider about Sabbath rest throughout the Old Testament is that God instituted a day of rest with his people. And this is, of course, one of the Ten Commandments, to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And on this day, the people, they were to cease working and to use the day as a day to remember and honor the Lord. Why? Why did God command them to set that day aside? Well, if you remember the Ten Commandments, you remember how they start. Before God gives the commandments, before he lays out the things that he wants his people to do, he first reminds them that he is the God who brought them out of enslavement. And then after that reminder, he then gives them the commandments, which include the Sabbath. And one of the reasons that matters is because God is reminding them, listen, you were once enslaved to work in Egypt. You could not rest. But now, in your liberation and freedom, you can rest. And so this day that you're setting aside is a reminder that you are no longer enslaved. So live like that is true. So Sabbath is a reminder, that the, a reminder of the freedom that God gives to his people. So one, it's a reminder of God's rule and reign. Two, it's a reminder of the freedom God provides his people. But thirdly, and finally, Sabbath rest is also related to a person. In Matthew 12, in uh, Mark 2, Luke 6, Jesus gives himself a title that upends our notions of rest. Because in those passages, Jesus says of himself that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. What does that mean? I mean, Jesus, at minimum, is claiming to be the creator, the one who instituted this eternal rest, the one who rules and reigns eternally. And as the one who rules over the eternal, we also know that Jesus stepped out of that place of eternal rest and into a world of restless toil. He is also the one who has liberated his people so that they might experience freedom. And he does so by going to the cross and rising again in the resurrection to fulfill the ultimate purpose of Sabbath, which was our freedom. The Lord of the Sabbath accomplishing an eternal Sabbath rest for his people. I mean, Jesus Christ in his life, his death, and resurrection has done all that is needed for you and I to experience eternal Sabbath rest with God. So putting that all together now, I told you to stick with me. Sabbath rest is us saying, and my question would be to all of us, can we say this to be true? I will live under God's rule and recognize that he is the author and sustainer of life and the one to whom my life belongs. I will trust in and surrender to him. And I will lay aside any attempts at rest. For only in Christ can I find what I'm looking for. Can that statement be true of us? Because that's what Sabbath is. It's giving our lives fully and completely to the God who has accomplished a Sabbath rest for us. Now, I have found, practically speaking, uh, two different ways to approach that idea of Sabbath. It's, Sabbath tends to be a twofold reality for me, and this is what I want to leave us with. I want us to uh, keep in mind that Sabbath is often a posture 
and that Sabbath is often a practice. It needs to be both. I'll explain to you what I mean. And this, I hope, is practical as to why we engage in Sabbath rest. The first is that we need to have a posture of Sabbath, given everything that I just said. I mean, the questions before us would be, do I have that sense of rest in the person and work of Jesus? Do I have that posture of trusting the Lord at all times? Do I have a posture that leads me to pour out my life before him? Because on the one hand, Sabbath is a posture, an attitude, a hope, a faith. Where are the places where I am maybe not pouring my life out before him? Are there ways that I seek to soothe my restlessness through, again, like relationships, success, riches, or more? And Sabbath, as a posture, is us laying those things down, trusting in the Lord, trusting in the good things that he gives to us, and believing that nothing else will satisfy. And so, first, do we have a posture of Sabbath? But then the second thing to highlight here is that Sabbath is also a practice. Meaning when we truly have that posture, our everyday lives will reflect it. It is God saying to Israel, I set you free, now live like it. And what does that look like? I mean, first and foremost, right, the most direct thing that we can take away from this is that if we believe that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, and that we are invited into his Sabbath rest, we will cease from working, like literally, and actually rest. And while I know there, there might be circumstances or seasons that complicate our ability to take time off of work, overwork is almost always the result of not trusting in the goodness of God, in the provision of God. I have to work. I have to succeed. I have to earn it will all fall apart if I don't. And for many, especially in New York, we become enslaved to our work, like Israel and Egypt. And taking time off seems like a crazy idea. Taking time off from work and letting that day be a day of rejuvenation, focused on the, the honoring, the goodness of God and his provision, it all feels impossible. Or impossible. But Sabbath is a declaration that I will not be enslaved to my work and pursuits. And you know what? That might mean you don't get the kind of raise that you were hoping for. You don't uh, climb the ladder as quickly as you hoped for. You might not get that status, but nonetheless, along the way, I have trusted in the goodness and the provision of God. So at minimum, as a practice, Sabbath is recognizing I need to not become enslaved to my work. And so the question, I guess, would be for all of us, do we have that practical rhythm of rest and Sabbath? Do we actually take time off and allow that time to be something that rejuvenates us, focusing us on the honor of God, the goodness of God, the provision of God? Do you have the practical rhythms of rest and Sabbath? If that's something that you struggle to consider, and I would say all of us do at various levels, we either struggle with the posture, we struggle with the practice, or we struggle with both. I'd encourage you to go to our website. We've got a few really great ways to consider what Sabbath rest could look like practically for you. But I recognize that all of us struggle from time to time with this very issue. And so my encouragement would be, first and foremost, if we're going to be a people of Sabbath rest, we need to first remember what it took in order for us to experience that eternal Sabbath rest, which is the work of Jesus, 
Again, the one who stepped out of that eternal rest and into a world of endless toil. But he did so in order to accomplish for us the rest that we have been seeking and desiring. And as we begin to recognize the extent to which Jesus has accomplished this for us, we will then begin to see that he's a trustworthy God. He is one worthy of giving our full lives to. And as a result, our entire life will now revolve around reflecting my trust in him my surrender before him. And it will lead us to experience what David is experiencing. Though the world seems like it is closing in, I feel like I'm going to collapse. I nonetheless have a rest because I'm resting in the Lord of the Sabbath. My hope, my trust would be that as we pray that prayer, as we desire for those things, God will meet us there, strengthen us in ways that nothing else that we look to will. And that in the end, our lives will become more and more lives that honor him as we experience rest even more. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your great kindness to us. A kindness that led our Savior, Jesus, to step out of eternal rest and into a world of endless toil. But he did so that we might, by his life, death, and resurrection, experience the true rest that we've been seeking and looking to so many other different things to fulfill and to provide. Lord, the great irony is that we know, we know deep down that nothing that we look to is going to give us what we want. And yet, nonetheless, we organize our lives around it. We pursue it in unhealthy ways. But God, I pray that you would confront us in that and by your mercy remind us that it will not satisfy, that the only way we will experience that rest is when we no longer keep those things central, but rather make you central, organize our entire lives around you, trusting you, surrendering to you. Lord, we are too weak to be able to do that on our own. And so would you... Empower us to do it by the work of your Spirit in us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.